Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Again, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to see you guys here in person. If you're joining us online, welcome. We are so glad that you are here as well uh, in your PJs, in your living room, kitchen, uh, bedroom, wherever you happen to be tuning into the service. We're glad that you're here. We're continuing our series called Every Good Work. Uh, the series is through the book of Titus. So if you have a Bible or you got your phone with you, uh, you can turn to Ch- Titus chapter one. Uh, in just a moment, we're going to pick up Uh, in verse five. So today um, we are talking about a topic uh, that could be divisive for a variety of reasons in our church. So I'm going to have to ask you to do me a favor. Could you just hang in there? Could you give me a little bit of grace uh, so we can kind of take this journey together and end in a good spot? Is that possible today? Yep. If you're online, give me a thumbs up, please. So I know that you guys are with me. Yeah, that's good. The other disclaimer is there's no way today that I'm going to be able to treat this topic exhaustively. Uh, So it's possible we could leave today with more questions than answers for some of you. And so please feel free over the course of the week, send me an email, shoot me a text. If you really get fired up about it, you can give me a call and we'll walk through all those things together. I hope this isn't the last time we walk through some of these issues as a church, but I just wanted to set that tone, right? I need you to be a little gracious, a little patient with me and be willing if something is confusing or doesn't add up to take a little initiative to reach out. Is that cool? Good. Online, you guys good? Great. All right. So a couple years ago, um, my wife and I went to this thing in Macon, Georgia called the Big House. Now that might not mean a lot to you, but what the Big House is, is a museum dedicated to the Allman Brothers Band. Now, the reason that's significant for me is because I grew up in middle Georgia. And if you grew up where I grew up, the Allman Brothers is a big deal. I mean, they started about 20 miles from my house, this band that really pushed the edges of uh, what was at that time Southern rock. They would call it maybe progressive rock, uh, but it's jam band, fantastic. The reason it's so significant is because when I was about 13 years old, in um, the bonus room of our house, which if you have a bonus room in your house, uh, was just where we stored a bunch of junk, um, I found a stack of my mom's vinyl records from when she was in high school. And one of those records was this Allman Brothers Greatest Hits album. And I remember dusting off the record play at our house and just playing that record over and over and over again. I love the Allman Brothers. Now, some of you are going to judge me for that. Some of you are going to think that I'm way too uh, old. You're like, whoa, that band is old. Like, what is going on with you? Some of you are like, yeah, the Allman Brothers, a hip new band, right? Like, I understand we're in a bunch of different spots today, but it's a band that I fell in love with. Now, here's what's interesting about going to the big house. As we were walking through, Kristen would ask me questions. Now, I'm not a mega fan, But I did follow a lot of the Allman Brothers stuff. I mean, it was pretty instrumental, a band that I really fell in love with early, and I would not know the answers to the questions. Isn't that the worst feeling in the world? When you are with someone and you're like, oh, I love this. This is one of my most favorite things. And I'm like, well, how does this work? Like, I don't know. What's this about? I don't know. It's the worst. What I realized was the museum, the big house, while unbelievable, is really built for insiders. You got to know the story you got to know where every piece of memorabilia comes from before you can really have the full experience. And what I found myself saying all the way throughout that day was, I wish we had somebody who would walk through this with us, 
who would tell us the story behind this gold top Les Paul, who would tell us the story behind why this you know, clothing, why this outfit is significant. I was yearning for that. Maybe you've done that. Where you've done maybe a huge museum, maybe in D.C. or somewhere, you did one of those self-guided tours. And about 15 minutes, you're like, could I get a non-self-guided tour, right? Could someone else help me navigate this thing? What we're going to talk about today is this issue of leadership in the local church. The way that God calls particular people for particular roles to make sure everyone knows what it looks like and what it takes to follow Jesus so that people aren't lost in the process. We're going to talk about what it looks like to be leaders who are God's showing people how to faithfully follow Jesus. Titus chapter one, verse five. You remember the context? Paul has sent Titus, his coworker, to Crete. Uh, The church in Crete is a train wreck. It's a disaster. And Titus is there to set things right. All right, you guys remember that? Here we go, verse five. It says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And appoint elders in every town that I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their conscience are defiled. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now there's a lot in this passage, so let's pray together that God would help us to understand it. Father, may you in this moment by your spirit Show us the truth of the scripture. God, my humble cry, my humble plea is that there's there anything that I say uh, that doesn't correspond with your word, your truth, uh, that it would fall on deaf ears. Uh, but if there's anything that's of you, God, could you help it stick? Amen. So in the life of our church, we typically, about 70, 75% of the time, teach straight through books of the Bible which means usually we're getting this whole big idea about what the Bible teaches in this particular book and hopefully over the course of the entire uh, uh, corpus of Scripture. But occasionally we get to a text like this where it's probably not something that we would choose to talk about on a regular basis, all right? So we're going to dive through this because I think it says a lot about our church church 
It says a lot about what we believe. It teaches us a lot about the way that we live in life together. But I understand it's probably going to be a little bit of a struggle for you to find a particular application point for your life in this very given moment. I just need you to hang in there with me. All right, we good? Here we go. Here's what he says. Titus in verse five is given a task. The task is to put what remains in order. The, tr- the church is like a, it's a mess. And so Paul's saying, Titus, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get there and get it all sorted out and straightened out. You get it healthy again. The way he's going to do that in verse five is by appointing elders. Now that's the first question we have to ask ourselves. What is an elder? Now in the New Testament, When the New Testament writers through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are talking about offices in the church, there's two that they mention. The first one is a deacon, and a deacon is a servant of the church. The second one is this office of elder. Now, what we mean by office is a role in the life of the church with a particular responsibility and a particular purpose. Does that make sense? So deacons as servants, that doesn't mean they're the only ones that serve. That means they are appointed by God and the church to serve the church in a particular way and a particular time for a particular purpose. Does that make sense? Same thing for elders here. It's a role of responsibility given to a particular group of people. So elders then are the leaders of a local church. The New Testament uses some terms to describe this position, and it uses them all interchangeably. So sometimes they use the term bishop or overseer, like we see in this passage, or elder, sometimes pastor. Typically, pastor is used as a verb. And what that means is elders, leaders, overseers, bishops, that whole office does the role of pastoring or leading, guiding God's people. Peter talks about this role as well. First Peter chapter two, he says, as a fellow elder. So what he just says, he's like, hey, as a fellow shepherd of God's people, I appeal to you, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. This is a picture of what elders are. They are men called by God to local churches who are responsible for the care of God's people, for watching over and protecting God's people, and leading God's people to look increasingly more like Jesus. Now, the reason this is confusing for some of us is because in our contemporary culture, we've maybe expanded in some ways or retracted in some ways or created like this confusing mixture of things around pastor. Typically, we just use the word pastor to mean anybody who has any sort of ministerial oversight. And that's not exactly the role that Paul is talking about here. What he's talking about is particular leaders in the life of the church called to oversee, to lead, to guide, who are responsible for the livelihood, teaching, and direction of that local church. Peter says they're servants, 
called by God to serve, to serve mainly by their own good example. Leaders who show this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. So the big idea today then is we would say this, elders are servants of Jesus who are leading, guiding, and teaching Jesus's people. They are men who are responsible to both Jesus and his people and who are serving Jesus by serving Jesus's people, his church. Now, why does Titus need to take this step? Why does he need to find these sorts of leaders in Crete? The reason is because the church has a leadership problem. It's what he's expounding on in verses 10 through 16, that the root of the church's problem, the reason they're not about the good works that God has called them to is because they have unfit, corrupt, poor leadership. They're being led currently by men who are not of upstanding character, who celebrate along with the culture of Crete, like we talked about last week, celebrate deception and self-centeredness, who are corrupting or confusing the message of Jesus, instead teaching myths and deceiving people about the truth of God's word, who are, Paul says, in it for shameful gain. And his conclusion is, these leaders are no good. If you're from where I'm from, we would say they're not worth their salt, right? They're unfit for this sort of leadership. Now, what exactly they're doing is three big categories of things. The first category is they're upsetting households. And so in their teaching and interaction, they're going into families and communities where they live and causing conflict and division. Instead of the church being unified around the gospel, instead of the church being unified around mission, these self-centered men are stirring up problems and causing disarray. Actually, upsetting in the text can mean to overturn or destroy. They are out to turn families into, their, for, uh, use families for their own self-centered gain. So this poor leadership is creating a relational crisis in the church. This is affecting their entire community. It seems to be that the way Crete, the, the, Crete, the church in Crete worked is that these particular households were like little house churches or maybe sort of like our missional communities. And so by throwing these homes in disarray, these leaders are preventing the, the uh, forward motion of the gospel. They're destroying the reputation of the church and their community. The second thing about these leaders is they lack character. They, Paul says, profess to know God, but deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Their walk doesn't match their talk. They claim to follow Jesus, but don't look like Jesus. So it would be like um, if you were a huge fan of the Georgia Bulldogs. Right? God's team. And you told everybody, I love the dogs. Man, I'm cheering for the dogs. But you had season tickets to Alabama games. And when on your way to work, you wear a University of Florida hoodie or a Georgia Tech hat. Everybody be like, nah, man, you're not a fan. I don't know what you cheer for or who you are, but you're not a Georgia Bulldog fan. Because I'm a Georgia Bulldog fan. And there's no possible way in public I would ever be caught wearing a, uh, a, a Georgia Tech hat. You know what I'm saying? Like, 
We don't even do orange and blue in my house. Like no sort of combination of that is even allowed at our house, right? What we're saying, or what Paul's saying is, hey, they claim to be something that they're not. They lack character. The third thing is they're not committed to gospel doctrine. That word doctrine just means teaching. They're confusing people. Paul says they're of the circumcision party, which means they're teaching some sort of mixture of the gospel message of Jesus along with adding to it obedience to certain rituals or laws in the Old Testament. They are confusing people with what he calls myths. Maybe today we would say conspiracy theories. And they're stirring up dissension because they're not getting the message right. Paul's conclusion is they're just not fit to lead. They can't be leaders in Jesus' church. They can't help people follow Jesus to serve others because they're in it to serve themselves. They can't help people follow Jesus by telling their friends about who Jesus is because they don't understand the basic message of the gospel. They're too busy stirring up their own concoction of what the Bible teaches. They can't help people grow in unity because they're too busy stirring up dissension and conflict in families. They're not going to work. And so he tells Titus to do two things. The first thing he says is rebuke them. Titus, job number one when you show up is you're going to have to have some hard conversations with some folks and tell them they need to move along out of these leadership roles. And then he's going to do the second thing, which is get better leaders. If we want to change the direction of the church, we need better leadership. So he instructs Titus, you go find some mature Jesus followers who are good husbands and good dads who conduct themselves with the highest character and can teach the church about Jesus and how to follow Jesus and what it looks like to be a Jesus follower here in Crete. And notice this is important, especially important in the life of our church. Verse 5, he says, appoint elders, plural. In fact, all the way throughout the, old, the New Testament, when we see church leaders, elders, bishops, overseers, pastors talked about, it's plural. Now, there's no specific command or instruction in the New Testament that every church has to have more than one elder or pastor, but there is a pattern of a plurality of elders. So that top level of leadership in a church is shared by more than one person. So what do these elders look like? The first characteristic of verse six is above reproach. I think this one is first because it covers all of the rest of the things we're gonna talk about. That these men who are appointed as elders or overseers of the church should be above reproach. That means without a charge or a hint of immorality, this does not mean that they are perfect, but they are good, decent, honest, humble men. And this characteristic of them is that they are set apart, different in their character. And so unlike maybe our political situation, when it comes to leadership in the church, character always matters and it always comes first. The Bidi Anabwile says being above reproach means that an elder is to be the kind of man whom no one expects of wrongdoing or immorality, that people would be shocked to hear this kind of man charged with such acts. 
The question is, is he well thought of by people inside and outside of the church? And that idea of above reproach fits into three big categories in the text. The first one is this. He leads his family well. Verse 6 says he's a husband of one wife. So is this a person, is this a man where there's a, no sort of charge against him in the way that he interacts with the opposite sex? No sort of charge, no sort of doubt that he's committed to his wife. It additionally says his believers are children, or another translation is faithful or trustworthy. So the question here is, does he lead his family in the sort of way that you would expect of someone leading you in this church family? Now remember, this is part of the issue in Crete. These particular leaders, these bad leaders, are throwing families into chaos. And so Paul's telling Titus, the answer is, look for good husband and fathers who already shepherd their families well. Instead of leading with conflict and strife, find people who are leading their families with honor, respect, and order. If you find that guy, you might have an elder for your church. Jeremy Ryan says, both parenting and eldering are about guiding people towards maturity within a community context. That's why this is so important. This does not mean that this elder has to be the perfect husband or father. It doesn't mean that he's disqualified if his kids walk away from the faith, that we see him as unfit. Remember, Jesus tells a story about a father whom Jesus compares to God who has a son who walks away. The key to that story, though, is the father responds to that son with grace, love, and compassion, and that's what we're looking for. In our church, leaders, men who respond and lead their families from the gospel. So the question we have to ask is, does he have a grip on his family, a good grip on his family? Second thing, Paul says he leads himself well. Verse 7, 8, and 9, it goes through characteristics that are character-based. Is he a person of high character? Is this a person who's already being a good steward or manager of what God has given him now? Is this a person who thinks rightly of himself, isn't proud or conceited? Does this person have control over his appetites and emotions? Or is he quick-tempered? Does he have a a, a good relationship with alcohol? Is he given to a lack of self-control when it comes to consuming alcohol? Is he a brawler? That's what that word violent means. Is he ready to throw hands when anyone says anything negative about him? Is he in this for greedy gain? Do you get the idea that he doesn't have a healthy relationship with money that he's trying to take advantage? All of these things would be disqualifying. Does he relate well to others? Does he extend hospitality? Does he love doing good? The big idea here is character matters. And we want to pick leaders in local churches not based off gifting alone, but based on their character. If the first question is, does he have a good grip on his family? This question is, does he have a good grip on himself? Can he lead himself well? Again, this doesn't mean perfect. We're not talking about getting a collection of elders together to live in a fishbowl with them and their families where as a church we get to stand outside and be critical of any time they fall short. That's not what we're doing here, I hope. But we are going to ask of our leaders when they 
do wrong, that they're honest and repent and model for us what it looks like to be men who are open to change and humble enough to admit their faults. Elders are not superstars. You notice anything about this list? It's totally unremarkable. There is no place in the rest of the New Testament where this isn't asked of any believer. This is what it looks like just to follow Jesus, and that's the point. You're not picking leaders who are superstars, who have some sort of special anointing that nobody else has. We're picking men as leaders who look like Jesus, who, as as Peter says, are examples to follow. That's the goal. Then the third thing is he teaches the scripture well. Does he have a good understanding of the Bible? Is he able to communicate and apply biblical truths to other people? This doesn't mean just preaching or teaching. You guys know Mitchell is an elder in our church, and he doesn't very often do what I'm doing. But he does lead a missional community. And he's exceptionally good at explaining and teaching the Bible in small group settings or one-on-one settings. I'm terrible at it. Ask anybody in our missional community, ask a question, they're like, bro, what are you driving at? Sometimes during the week, I'll ask Kristen, I'll say, hey, let me, I'm going to run over my message. This is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm going to talk about. And I do it in such a way that's so discombobulated. She's like, have you thought this through? Because for some reason in that context, clarity escapes me in a way that being up here, I can embrace. So the big question here is though this, does he have a good grip on the message? Does he know the gospel? Is he able to articulate it in a way that makes sense? And you need all three. This is important. Because sometimes we get wowed by a gifting and ignore character. Sometimes we push against gifting so much that we just look at character. And we have some guys leading us that don't know the Bible and can't explain it. Sometimes we ignore uh, people's family life just based on their good intentions. But Paul's saying when you're looking for leaders in a local church, you want good ones. And here's what good ones look like. They're already stewarding a shepherding opportunity well. In the context of a community of a family, they're already leading and guiding their family. What you're looking for is someone of high character. What you're looking for is somebody they can explain and teach the scriptures. Now, here's the controversial part, because some of us have been thinking for like the past 15 minutes, Brandon, you continually use the pronoun he, what's up with that? You're talking about elders as men. What is the deal? All right, now we got to zoom out just a little bit. I got to explain two big camps to you, okay? When it comes to understanding the role of men and women in the family and in the church, and I want to be clear, this is for the family and the church. We're not talking about any other arenas, all right? In the family and the church, there are two big camps. The first one is egalitarian. The egalitarian camp believes this first that women and men are created equal in value before God, that all people are created in the image of God with intrinsic worth and value. There's no difference before God in the value or the worth of men or women. Second thing they believe, that men and women are created by God to be able to perform the exact same roles that you can substitute a man or a woman into any role, and that is fine. 
that God did not create men or women differently for different roles in the family or the church. Now, here's how you arrive at that viewpoint. For most people who hold to an egalitarian view of men and women in the life of the church, they hold to what is called a progressive interpretation of the scripture. And the idea here is that the scripture shows a slow and steady increase in the way that God relates to men and women that while not complete uh, in the New Testament can be completed here and now. So the idea is that God has set certain things in motion in the way that women and men's roles are played out in the family of the church. And there's some things in the Old Testament that were like, whoa, we would never do that, like polygamy. But by the time we get to the New Testament, we're like, oh, nobody's doing that. Cool. You know what I mean? And we see the way Jesus includes women in his ministry. We see the way women are included in the life of the church. And so the natural conclusion is that while the Bible didn't get all the way there, it's leading us in a trajectory or a progression to adopt this viewpoint. Does that, does that make sense? So that's what's going on behind the scenes. Okay, the second position of the second camp is called complementarian. Complementarians affirm the first tenet of egalitarianism wholeheartedly. Men and women are equal in value. All people are created in the image of God with intrinsic worth and value. There is no difference. God loves, cares for, values all regardless of their sex or gender. But the difference is in tenet two. Complementarians believe that men and women are created for different roles, that they're not interchangeable, but they're intended to complement each other in both life and in ministry. Now, the reason complementarians hold this view is not because they want to be overly patriarchal or not because they're trying to preserve some sort of cultural identity of the West, but the reason they hold this view is because they interpret the scripture differently that they believe that the Bible has instructions for the way men and women are supposed to relate to each other and complement each other, and the Bible's not necessarily progressive in nature, but complete. And so any instruction that we have in the scripture about the roles of men and women has already been stated. Now, we acknowledge that some cultural things are hard to work through. The Bible is written in a different time and place than where we function now. So there's some hard things to walk through. But if God intended for there to be further revelation or instruction about this subject, he would have included it already in the scripture. The second thing that complementarians see is a particular pattern of complementary relationships all the way through the scripture. So complementarians would go back to Genesis and say God created Adam and Eve equal in value, but as a unit to complement each other well. Or we'll go to the Trinity and go, hey, this is a hard teaching to understand, but God is one God that exists in three persons. And each of the three persons of God is not of lesser value or not lesser God, but yet each submits to each other in unique ways. That the Father loves the Son, and the Son submits to the Father. That the Son sends the Spirit, and the Spirit submits to the Son and the Father. And that the Spirit loves the Father, and the Spirit loves the Son. And they are distinct in personality, and yet, one, equal in value. And so for a complementarian, 
we would say we see this clear pattern and instruction in Scripture where people are designed to function in relationship with each other, equal in value, but complementary in nature. Does that make sense? Now, I am sure at this point I gave it away, but at Mercy Hill, we're complementarians. Now, this does not mean that if you hold a different viewpoint, you're not welcome here. In fact, just the opposite. We love that you're here. And if you've been coming for a while, you can attest to the fact, this is the first time you've ever heard me articulate this. So this isn't exactly anything that we're trying to fight with people about. It's just where we park. And so the design of leadership in our church springs from a complementarian view. Now, the problem with complementarianism is that we've met some, and they're jerks, right? Who seem to be more concerned with holding on to what's culturally appropriate or necessary from yesteryear than being fully biblical in their understanding of complementarianism. Who say ridiculous things like women just need to stay home, have babies, and make me sandwiches. That is not what we're talking about. Not at all. So if that's what's in your brain, please cast that aside. Instead, I want to be very clear. We would reject anyone using complementarianism as a justification for abuse of any woman at any time. Full stop. We would reject complementarianism being used to suppress women, their voices, their leadership in our church. We would completely reject being, it being used to belittle the contributions of women in our life of our church and in our ministry for crying out loud. We have amazing women in our church who lead in unbelievable ways. The whole point of this view is that we need each other, not that we cast stones at each other. That it takes us all working together in our particular ways that God designed us for us to be a healthy, functioning, Jesus-honoring church. So at Mercy Hill, we reject any teaching or practice that violates the value, dignity, or worth of any woman, absolutely. We would affirm that God creates women with unbelievable talent, gives them spiritual gifts, and calls them to leadership in the life of God's church. At our church, we want both men and women to flourish and to be a place where women can maximize their gifts and talents. And we hope, hope, hope that we're a church where women can do that. So then why, Brandon, can't women serve as elders? Let me try to paint the picture for you. The Latin root of the word leader actually means go forth and die. See, what we're doing here is at the very top of our organization doing something that's really countercultural. We're trying to put men in those positions who do not lord their authority over anyone, but sacrifice willingly for everyone in our church. Eric Geiger and Kevin Peck say, true leaders are servants who die to themselves so that others may flourish. True leaders go forth, not for themselves, but for others. Remember, this is the big idea. Elders are servants of Jesus who are leading, guiding, and teaching God's people. Servants, not leaders. 
Crawford are not lords. Crawford Loritz says, though leadership is crucial, it is never meant to be a status symbol or a personal statement of worth and value. The one who leads is no more important than the one who faithfully serves in obscurity. Leaders are meant to be servants and elders as the top leaders in our church are meant to be the top servers shepherding God's people so that all of God's people can flourish, so that every woman here is using her gifts for the glory of God, so that every man here is learning to follow Jesus with courage. And so our church, we hope and pray, are made up of elders who are willing to sacrifice time, platform, earning potential, and reputation for the good of our church. That's why there's qualifications. Because nobody, want, uh, none of us wants to get on a Delta flight, walk past the pilot as he's like, man, I didn't even go to school for this. I took a test online. Right? No, no, no. We want our pilots to be qualified, immensely qualified. The same in the life of our church for people who are leading by example and teaching uh, to spiritual health, what it looks like to follow Jesus, we want to be qualified. You see, leaders are essential to the good work of the church. Elders are essential to the good work of the church, but they don't exclusively do the good work of the church. In fact, I would say the most significant work of our church is done by people who aren't elders. Ephesians chapter five, Paul says that God has appointed leaders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's the model. Not that we're doing the work and we're holding on to everything, but that we are setting an environment and a place where you can flourish, where you can use your gifts and talents so you can be used by God. In this way, we're like fathers. I'm old, I'm 40. I turned 40 this year. I saw a picture, I don't have any hair. Like I thought it was a little better than what it was. I have no hair. I'm not leading a mega church by now. I'm not on the conference uh, circuit. I'm not, I haven't written a book. I'm not known on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. You know what, as a dad, you know what my greatest contribution is? Man, that I raised some kids that love Jesus and do some incredible things. As a pastor of Mercy Hill, elders, you know what Mitchell and Bo, you know what, you know what our greatest goal is? Not that we would be known, but, but that we would see you flourishing. That's the goal. Now, do we fall short of that? Yeah. Have I let you down? Some of you could testify. We're not doing that today, all right? But some of you could be like, yeah, well, let's get specific. But this idea is this cascading leadership. We're at the top of our church, our men called by God, investing in you, sacrificing for you, loving you, teaching you so that you can go and lead wherever you are and with whoever you have influence with, whether that's inside the church or outside of the church, so that you can encourage and lead and pray for and teach and love people. That's it. That's the design. I think it's particularly compelling. Not everybody agrees, and that's okay. This means a couple of things that I don't want to miss for us today, especially in light of the recent news. First, it means this. It means there is 
an inherent danger in celebrity pastor culture. Now, I have benefited greatly from watching and listening to messages about podcasts, YouTube, that sort of thing. But we always have to be careful about the level of trust we put into teachers and pastors whom we don't know. Because their teaching might be particularly compelling, but we have no idea what kind of character they have or how they lead their own families. That means we have an incomplete picture of their leadership, and the danger is that we assume because someone is compelling from the pulpit that they have the character to back that up, and that's not always true. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. It is especially dangerous in my estimation. This is Brandon's opinion, not from the scripture, all right? In my opinion, it is especially dangerous for us to follow celebrity pastors and teachers who are not faithful members of a local church. So if you are getting into someone this leading and guiding, a question you need to ask is, do they belong to a church somewhere? Is, does somebody know their character? Does somebody know the way they lead their family? All right? Particular danger that we need to be mindful of. The second pitfall is the reaction to that. That we would be so mindful of the fact that some of these folks whom we don't know don't have character that add up, don't teach the Bible well, that we would become critics of people who don't, we don't even know that we would become a church that's on a witch hunt to find every single false teacher on the face of the planet that were scouring YouTube looking for any video of anybody who's saying anything negative about anybody else. Let's be super clear. Mercy Hill is not on a Beth Moore witch hunt, all right? We're not doing that here. You might not agree with what she does or or the way that she does it, that's fine, but she's got a pastor at her local church that she's accountable to, so leave her alone. We're not on a witch hunt to find the next heretical thing coming out of Bethel. We need to be mindful of it. We need to know they say some crazy stuff, but do not spend your time on YouTube trying to find everything negative about somebody else's church. Instead, start embracing your role in pastoring. Go have coffee with somebody that needs to talk about Jesus. Invite a coworker to lunch. Pray for me, please. Pray for Bo. Pray for Mitchell. Pray for our ministry leaders here. Pray for my wife. Pray for Elizabeth. Pray for Lana. Like, we need you. Stop wasting time chasing things down every, something that happened in California. Who cares? We need to not fall in blind trust of celebrity pastors or feeling like we have to be the theology police. We got our own church, our own community that we need to pray for and love well. Everybody good? Man, I just obliterated the time today. I did it in the nine. I said I was gonna make it shorter. I think I made it longer instead. So um, I'm gonna pray for us. Uh, Lauren, I think just to be mindful of the time, uh, I hate to do this. We're going we're gonna to skip the last song. I'm very sorry, all right? I'm going to pray for us, then I'll give us some next steps. Um, let's pray. Father, uh, I just in humility ask that you would help 
me be a leader that looks like this. The truth is I fall woefully short. And I'm so thankful for a gracious church that holds me accountable, points me to Jesus, ask of me repentance. Father, my prayer is that you would raise up more and more leaders in our church who are not here for selfish gain, not trying to get a platform, not trying to be anybody, not looking forward to using any measure of authority to get what they want, but who want to be servants of you to lead, guide, and teach your people. Father, I pray that the experience of our church would be this cascading leadership. That both men and women in our church will be loved so well, taught so well, encouraged so much, prayed for so well by our elders that they would walk in courage and faith to everything that you've called them to do. Father, where we fall short, give us grace. Help us to be increasingly more and more like Jesus. Amen.